0: We are in the midst of a, a series uh, this summer, and we are talking about uh, the things that can sicken our soul. And we're looking to the gospel as the antidote, and there are unique aspects of the gospel that deal with the different things that, uh, that we're talking about. It's so important to take seriously the fact that you have an eternal soul. It's important to recognize that, not only in yourself, but to understand that about the people who are around you. Take just a moment and look around you for just a moment, and understand that there are no ordinary humans. All human beings are extraordinary because each and every one of us is immortal. Every person around you, you are going to live forever. And what will that life be like? What will that life consist of? Well, it depends entirely on what you base your faith on, what defines you as a person. Know and understand, if you are being defined by a created thing, sooner or later that created thing is going to fail you. And when it does, the fall will be great. Understand that you have an eternal soul, and and within you there is a void in that soul that only someone who is eternal can feel, and only someone with with eternal power can sustain, and that is God alone in Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. So today, as we're talking about something that ails all of us, it's important to realize and to recognize uh, what's going on in your own soul and to deal with it, and to deal with it properly. Not with shame, not with, with this, this moaning and, and going about feeling sorry for yourself, but rather by faith, looking to the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing what He alone can do and experiencing what He alone can do. Today we're going to talk about something no one wants to hear about, but we all need to deal with, and that is pride. We all suffer from it. We all have signs of, of what it does. It's very destructive. We need to recognize that. And I pray today as we look into this this whole concept that your eyes will be open to some things that maybe you have been deceived into believing doesn't exist about you. It's amazing how often we will dismiss our own pride but seek it in others and discover where it exists in them. Do yourself a favor today and allow the Scriptures to speak to you. Allow the Word of God to cut you. It has cut me all week, and it has been beneficial. When I say pride, I, I want to be clear on what I'm not talking about. Sometimes it's, it's good to know uh, what something is not so that you can get a real clear picture of what something is. Know that these things are not original uh, with me. I got them from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, Mere Christianity. Uh, chapter 8, The Great Sin. If you do not own Mere Christianity, everyone needs a copy of Mere Christianity. So if you don't have it, even if you don't read it, put it on the coffee table and you'll look smart when people come by. But it is a great read. And that chapter in particular, I read it several times this week. Um, and the things I'm going to say, he writes so much better. But there are three things that, that are really helpful to know that, that what, I, what we don't mean by pride. What we don't mean, what I don't mean, is taking pleasure in pleasing someone with an act of service and receiving praise for it. See, an arrogant person, a prideful person says, well, I don't care what God says. I don't care what other people say. Doesn't matter to me that's pride. So if you find yourself saying that, be careful. That comes from a heart that is proud. See, here's what I know about all Christians, all disciples of Jesus. We all want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's good. That's good. We want to hear that. We, we want to enjoy that. Understand there's this fine line. It becomes pride when your delight is in yourself rather than in pleasing Jesus or someone else. You know, pride is is this thing that kind of slips in, and it it deceives. And so make sure that that you're not falling into pride. At the same time, know that that living to to please Christ is good. That's not pride. Second one, by pride I don't mean enjoying with warm-hearted admiration what another has done. Taking pleasure, for instance, in family or country or school. Uh, this July Fourth, as as I listened to our president give a description of all the accolades of the people that have gone before us, there was a pleasure in that. There was an honoring in that to to hear what others have done to to make the USA what it is. You know. When it becomes pride, that line, again, it's a fine line, and you really need to think this through to make sure that where you're standing is the right place. It becomes pride when you delight in yourself and being a part of or connected to what is admired. Pride says, hey, I'm an American. That means I'm better than everybody else. Hey, I'm from this family, that means I'm better than everyone else. Hey, I went to this school, so that means I'm more important or I have, I have some kind of higher ranking than someone else, I'm more important. That's what pride does. But there's, there's absolutely nothing, actually it's a good thing to enjoy, to enjoy this warm-hearted admiration for what another has done. A third one, and and again, there are more in Lewis's book. I just hit these three because they have wrecked me all week long, and I wanted to hopefully get you to to thinking as well. The third one is this. By pride I don't mean enjoying being openly engaged in affecting other people. You know, sometimes I hear uh, people being critical of maybe introverts who just go about doing their work and don't really seek a lot of attention for it. Sometimes they're called teacher's pets. Sometimes they're, they're called, uh, you know, people who are kissing up or whatever. And, and do, again, there doesn't mean that that doesn't exist. But, you know, there are a lot of people, they're completely unconscious of, of themselves, and they're just flat out doing what you ought to do. And that's not being proud. That's not being arrogant. Doing what you're supposed to do and just enjoying being the person who's doing what they're supposed to do, that's not arrogant. When does it become pride? When does it become uh, something you don't know? It becomes pride when we delight in our, our influence, when we delight in our effectiveness, when it becomes about us. Again, there's a lot to be said about that. There's a lot of thinking that needs to be done. I just wanted to throw that out to you uh, because this week that, that's really helped me understanding what it's not versus what it is. So let me give you a definition of what pride is. Now, this definition was a lot longer. We, it's not the be-all, end-all, but we find, I find it to be very helpful, all right? So pride, two things, is robbing God of glory and is, it is a misplaced sense of worth, So it's robbing God of glory, and it is a misplaced sense of worth. I want to kind of speak to both of those. First of all, pride is taking credit for your life and blessings. You basically think, man, I'm awesome, (laughs) and I'm better than other people because of what I have and what I can do and where I come from. And and that's pride. That is bad. It it, it is is also uh, thinking that you're—now, hear me on this one. It's thinking that you're owed better than what you're getting. This shouldn't be happening to me. That's the, those are the words of a proud person. Person who says, hey, that person cut me off. I, I know it's Scottsville Road, but how dare they cut me off? I mean, it's okay to cut off the rest of those people because they're not me. It was me that they cut off. Thinking that it, when a difficulty comes, that somehow that this shouldn't be happening to me. And by the way, this happens to rich and poor. It happens to those who are up and those who are in and those who are out. It happens to everybody. This pouting, this pouting is what it is. <laughs> Write this down. Proud people Pout. So when there's someone pouting, well, this just should not—eye rolling, sign of pride. Humble people don't pout. Humble people don't say, well, this shouldn't be happening to me. When we're saying that, what we're basically saying is, I'm more important than other people. It's okay for it to happen to them because they're nobodies, but it's me that it's happening to. I'm cool. I'm great. I'm awesome. This shouldn't be happening. I'm owed better. That's pride. That's destructive. So what is—well, let me say one more. This whole idea, that's robbing God of glory, thinking you're greater. It's also a misplaced sense of worth. Putting your value—hear what I'm saying. When I say putting your value in in a creative thing, what I'm saying is when you allow yourself to be defined by what you have, what you do, or what's been given to you, that is a misplaced sense of self-value. And many times what we'll do is we'll take pride in those things, and we'll allow ourselves to be defined by those things, and then, and then we're, we're stuck in pride. Remember, Jesus has called us to a very narrow way, and the devil is doing everything to keep us off of the narrow way. And the, one of the things he does is he says, look, 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 define yourself by your work. Define yourself by what someone gave you. Define yourself by that and, and, and be proud and have pride. If he cannot, if the devil cannot get you stuck in the ditch of pride, then he'll go to the other side. The other ditch on the other side of the way of Christ is despair. So if he can't get you to take pride in what you have and what you've been given and what you can do, he'll force you into despair because you don't have those things, because you can't do those other things, and because you no longer have what was given to you, it was taken. The devil doesn't care so long as he can get you off of the narrow way, but what he really wants to do is get you to fall and me to fall into pride. And it is destructive, as we will soon see. So what's the antidote for this? There's only one. The antidote is the Gospel, but there's two words I want you to catch that we're going to unpack today. The antidote for pride is two words, humble security in the Gospel of Jesus. Humble security. There is a humility and a security that comes in the gospel. Understand that when you repent and believe, you're killing pride. When you say, I can't trust in me, I can't trust in a created thing, I can only trust in Christ alone, that requires humility. But as soon as you take that step of faith on that solid rock that is Jesus Christ, you are secure. Here's what we understand about the world. It's not as it should be. God's design is no longer, is no longer fully functioning. Now we're still made in the image of God. We still have eternal, eternal existence and therefore eternal uh, weight to ourselves. But because of sin, it's broken. Our hearts are broken, our minds are broken, our souls are broken. And you're — we all are looking for something to deal with that brokenness. You're either going to look to Jesus Christ or you're going to look to a created thing. A created thing can be a job, it can be a child, it can be a good thing. It can be another religion. All other world religions other than Christianity are the same. They take on different names, but here's what they all say, earn your way to God. And, and in pursuing that, what you're doing is you're, you're saying, okay, I, a created thing, am going to do a, a, a finite thing that is going to satisfy the infinite within me, and that is God. It's a joke. We can't do it. We can't make up for the, for the infinite sin and the brokenness of our world. That's why God came. What Christianity teaches is God has come to not only take the penalty of our sin, but to remove the power of sin. See, when we repent, that is turn away from created things and believe in Jesus Christ and what He's done on the cross to forgive our sin and to give us new life, it allows us to pursue and recover God's design. That is sure footing for all of eternity. It requires humility but it creates security. So this gospel is what we want to understand. And it is this this humble, this humble security found in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the antidote for pride. And we need an antidote because pride is destructive. Pride comes at a cost, a huge cost. Let's look at that cost. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, go to Proverbs chapter 16. Maddie, why don't you come on up and read that for us. Proverbs chapter 16, uh, let's just read verses 18 through 20. Let's all stand together in honor of God's Word. And if you would, read starting in verse 18 and just go to verse 20. Okay. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen? Amen. If you would, go ahead and be seated. Thank you, Maddie. Well done. It only took us three times, didn't it? We gave her the fir- wrong scripture in the first service, and then I told everybody to look at the wrong scripture in the second service. We did it right, girl. We did it right. So, um, as we're thinking about pride, you know, I, as I thought about it this week and in, in, in in where we put it in the series, we probably should have done this one as the very first sermon of this series. Because in all honesty, it is the worst of all the, the contaminants that will sicken our soul. Um, it doesn't get any worse than pride. The good news is God has a better way. The world offers pride. Christ offers humble security, and and this way of life is found in the gospel. It makes us something, and and I want us to to look at that closely. Understand that the gospel, first of all, makes us humble because of our dependence upon Christ. We, We basically say, I can't do it, there's nothing else that can do it, but God has done it in Jesus Christ. And when God humbles us, here's what we know, it is a gift. It is a gift. Now, everybody in this room is going to be humbled. Those of you who are children of God by grace through faith in Christ alone, God is going to humble you and it's going to be a blessing. Those of you who are not followers of Jesus Christ, you've not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, you are still going to be humbled, but it will not be the the gracious humbling of God. Life will humble you. And it will be a curse. Either you will be humbled by God or you will be humbled by life. Now when life humbles us, what it does is it takes our stuff without giving us something better. It just takes. That's what life does. It takes. And in the end we die. Throughout life we experience the the taking that goes. We experience a thousand deaths. And life, in the end, it has nothing left to give because, again, it is finite. There are so many folks who can't sleep at night and who are having to take medication to deal with this reality of the taking of life. There is an anxiety that overrides everything else, and because we all know— you know what? We can't keep our kids always protected. I can't know that I'm always going to have this job. I can't know that I'm always going to be healthy. I can't know that everything, these these finite things, I know they're not going to last. And because I know that, I'm anxious. I'm paranoid. I'm frustrated. I'm scared. That is the life of a person separated from Christ, because life takes our stuff. Life removes our health without giving the hope of eternal life. Only Christ gives us the hope of eternal healing. What life does brings sickness, and with it the taking of vitality. Third thing, changes the rules so that what once made us great doesn't work anymore and does not give us anything better or deeper to define us. In my life I've had the opportunity to have heroes and to have met some of them. And in some instances, it it has been very sad to me. I remember meeting a, a couple of folks that I thought the world of. But having talked with them, I realized the emptiness of their life. Talking to them, I realized that they were depressed. I realized that that life no longer had any meaning, and they even said that. They even said, oh, how I wish I could go back and coach that team. Oh, how I wish I could go back and work and have that role and be in that position, because then I had meaning, then I had power, then life mattered. But now I have nothing. It doesn't matter if I get up in the morning or not. No one misses me. No, no, I don't matter to you. I'm not doing anything of substance. And they're depressed because their identity was in their work. Their identity was in what they had and what they could produce. And once life takes that away from you, there's nothing else it can give. And there is darkness, pain, and sadness. See, God, when He humbles us, He takes our stuff so that we will see that there's something more. God will often take things from His children so that they will not become idols in our hands so that we can see how great and glorious He is and worthy of our praise and worthy of our lives. Many times God will take our health for the purpose of pointing us to the eternal hope that we have in heaven. Right now we have several of our saints who know they will die of what they have contracted. And it is amazing to hear them speak of what they are looking forward to. They, no, one likes, no one looks forward to the process of dying. No one. I, I don't know anyone who says, oh, I can't wait to go through that pain. No. But it, it's like the birthing of a child. In the midst of that pain, there comes a life. And so it is for every saint who suffers through death we know that in the end, there is a life that is eternal. That is the blessing of God. He not only takes our stuff to show us that it is He alone that we can rely on, He also removes our health, but gives us hope of eternal healing. And as, as life changes, as, as, as the rules change, and what we used to rely on and, and used to have, as, as it becomes useless to us, what we have In our identity in Christ, cannot be lost ever. Our salvation in Christ alone stands forever and ever. And that hope is what we get when God humbles us. When life humbles us, it's a curse. It's hell. It's hell. Because here's what happens. Even when life takes from us, we stay proud. And we're just mad and hurt and empty and scared. That's what hell is. It's emptiness and anger and and hurt and fear eternally. That's what happens to those who don't have Christ. When life humbles us, it's a curse because we stay far from God and other people. And we often can't even see the monster that we are becoming. Because we're so eaten up with fear and frustration and anger and hurt, the worst in us comes out and we end up hurting those who are closest to us, who could help us. God being the the first, but also friends and family, they begin to want to avoid us because of the monster we are becoming because we don't have Christ. The sad thing is we stay driven to do what brings out the very worst. We want to be defined by something we can do, something we can have, something we can own, but life takes it. And we're left empty with nothing to live for, no purpose. That is hell. But God has promised something better. See when God humbles us, He gives us hope. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, Turn to Daniel chapter 4. Let me use the example of Nebuchadnezzar. I love Nebuchadnezzar because he was a good pagan. He's a good sinner. Of all the things that I can say about my life, there's only one thing I've ever been really good at, and that is being a sinner. But by God's grace, I was shown what I was. And by God's grace, I was changed in repenting and believing in Christ alone. Nebuchadnezzar was given a moment where he was humbled, but he was humbled by God. And the change that took place is the change that happens in everyone who repents and believes in Jesus. Beginning in verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws." At the same time, my reason returned to me and and, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, listen to this, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in, 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 in pride, he is able to humble. See, this is what happens to a person who is humbled by God and saved by grace, by the power of the gospel. The person who is humbled by God is able to see their sin. Nebuchadnezzar had already been told what was going to happen to him, and he knew it as a fact but he didn't know it in his heart. Go back and look at verse 27. Daniel the prophet, if you'll look beginning in verse 19, told Nebuchadnezzar that this was going to happen to him. And so look what Daniel said to him in uh, verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. What's he saying? Repent, repent, turn to God in your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity, that there can be grace. Nebuchadnezzar didn't believe. He didn't act on his belief in his heart. He maybe understood the facts, but he did not respond. Here's where some of you are today. Some of you know the gospel. Some of you know the facts of what Jesus Christ has done. You have been called to repent, but as yet you have not. My prayer for you is that God will humble you, that God will show you the inability of created things to satisfy the longing of your soul, that you will repent of those and trust in Christ alone. Here's what I know about every person who has repented. They are always glad that God humbled them. Every person that has ever been born again, who can look back on their life and see the things that God brought them through, they're glad. On the night I became a Christian, I was not glad to be in the back of a police car. Two weeks later, I was glad I was in that police car because it woke me up to the reality of where I was going without Jesus Christ. And that brokenness led me to humbly accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. When you go through broken times in your life, it's not like, oh, good, pain. It's not, it's not your response, but your response is, I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord's reasoning for this. It's like surgery. No one wants to go through surgery, but we know its benefit. And we have the great physician. And when it's done, we can say, I am glad for it. I am glad I went through this. I am glad because God gave me something I could never earn on my own. What is that? New life. Second Corinthians 5 17 says it plainly. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we repent and believe, we are given a whole new life. And that happens as the Lord humbles us and we see our sin and brokenness so that we can repent and believe and get a new life. And that new life makes us secure. So write it down quickly. The gospel makes us secure because of our position in Christ. See, when we're secure in Christ, we can do what God commands. Real quick, look over in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, there's a command. Uh, in Scripture for all who believe, and then there's a song. It's called the canonical hymn. It's believed to be one of the first songs sung by the early church. If you have the NIV 84 edition Bible, you'll see it's probably bracketed off because, again, it's understood to be a song. This, this song speaks to the theology that bears uh, for the individual who believes the ability to do the very thing God commands. So what does God command? Look in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We can serve others because we know who we are. As God's blood blood-bought children because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why was Jesus able to do what He did? Because he knew who He was. Remember the night when Jesus Christ, the night before Jesus died for our sins, he did one of the most ignoble things that, that a human being could do at that time, that his disciples were unwilling to do. All the disciples' feet were dirty and none of the disciples would wash the other's feet. So what did Jesus do? Scripture says that He took his, off His outer garment and He began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, why did He do that? It's interesting. Look in John—well, let me just show it to you. John 13, 3 tells us why. Why was Jesus able to do that? Jesus— Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, then the scripture says, then he was able to take off his outer clothes and and, and to wash the disciples' feet. He was able to do such a menial task because he knew who he was. He knew He was the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, and that washing the disciples' feet did not define Him. What defined Him is the fact that the Father had said over and over, this is my Son, with Him I am well pleased. This is my Son, listen to Him, is what He said on the Mount of Transfiguration. I know some of you have been waiting for me to talk about this. And for those of you who didn't know, this may be news to you and a surprise but Vanderbilt won the national championship in baseball. (laughs) The three of us are celebrating. (laughs) Now, why would I bring that up? Well, because of number seven, Stephen Scott. This picture was taken of Stephen one hour after they won the national championship. He's picking up the trash. No one told him to do it. It was his habit of doing this. He didn't know that anyone, that the the, the guy who did this had clicked the picture and put it on social media. He found out about it later when all of us retweeted it and said, you're the man. How is it and why was it that he was willing to do such a menial task? Because he knew that this didn't define him he knew who he was. So to pick up trash was not a big deal to him. He was glad to do it because being a trash picker-upper isn't what defined him. What defined him was his character. What defined him was who he was. So he was glad to, to take on such a menial task. You know why most people won't take on a menial task? Because they're afraid it'll define them. See, what most people want is to do something that everyone will celebrate, that everyone will applaud, that everyone will say, oh, you're so great. So few people, even among God's children, refuse to take on a menial task that only God would know about because they want to be defined as great. They want to be defined as the man, the woman, the one who is awesome, the one who is able to teach this or do this or be this. It's the person who says, you know what? It's not me changing a diaper. It's not me, me cleaning up a mess. It's not me, me picking up trash that defines me. What defines me is the blood of Jesus Christ and His resurrection and His love for my soul. When that defines you, you're glad to clean up the trash. You're glad to do the tasks that no one else will do. You're glad to be humble and take on any kind of role that is necessary because it doesn't define you. Jesus Christ defines you. Do you see the security in Jesus Christ? There's nothing in this world that can give you that except Jesus Christ. Everything else depends on you taking on pride, not Christ. Christ says, I know you can't make your own way. I know you can't earn your own way. I know there's no created thing that can define you and give you what you need. That's why Christ came. To give you a new identity. So that you could be humbly secure. So that you can be totally free. To serve in any capacity. And to be and go through whatever God has determined for you. Here's what I know about some of you in this room right now. You're lost and you're in trouble because your identity and what makes you feel important is a created thing that is going to be taken from you. And when it does, it will crush you. And then you're gonna die and your soul will go on. But your soul will not have the everlasting life of God defining you. That power will not be in you. You will not have the soul satisfaction of the love of God. Instead, you will be hurt, you will be empty, you will be angry, you will be frustrated, you will scream out and you will cry out in darkness with the demons of hell and all who have lived without Christ. And there you will be. That is not the way to go. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And he will save you. He will give you a new identity. He will give you a new life. He will give you everything that you've ever desired that no created thing can receive him today. Some of you are children of God. You've been saved. But if you're honest, you're honest, you're arrogant. There's pride. You're looking to created things. That's why you pout. That's why you won't serve. That's why you won't step up. That's why you're depressed. That's why you're anxious because you're not humbly secure in Christ. Yes, you may have salvation, but you're looking to created things to define you and to fill you. And you need to repent of that right now because it's killing you, it is sickening your soul. And it's robbing you of the very thing you want the most, which is the love of God and the love of His family. You're pushing people away with your arrogance, with your anger, with your emptiness, with your frustration. Stop. Repent. Look to Christ and His love. And last, again, we have, we have, we have some distractions. We have some, some things that are hindering us. they are obstacles. Leaders Grab your bulletin and come and pray that God would remove these obstacles so that we can be revived. Let's stand together as we pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what it reveals. It reveals reality. And, and the world deceives us and tells us that there is a created thing, that there is something that we can gain or do or possess that will fill the eternal weight and and. and emptiness of our soul, it's a lie. Lord God, only you can do that, and you have come to do that. And we praise you, Lord Jesus. I pray that there will be some who come get on their knees today and receive you, Lord Jesus, and that they will be saved. God, I pray for some of your children who need to come today and get on their knees and repent of pride, repent of being defined by something other than you. And Lord, hear the leaders of your church as we come and kneel before you and ask for revival. In the spirit of prayer, come as we sing. Come and pray.